I'm Dr. Lara Devgan. I'm a plastic surgeon in New York City, the CEO of Scientific Beauty, and of course, a major beauty enthusiast. You are listening to Beauty Bosses, where we chat with fellow industry leaders who are shaping beauty, fashion, wellness, and all things pretty. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Beauty Bosses. I'm so excited to have Ben Varadi, Director, Chief Creative Officer, and Executive VP at Spin Master. Spin Master is the group behind some of your favorite children's toys and franchises, including some of our personal favorites in my household. Paw Patrol, Bakugan, Hatchimals, Kinetic Sand, Air Hogs, and the newly acquired Rubik's Cube. Um, Ben graduated with his Honors Business Administration degree from Western University's Richard Ivey School of Business Administration um, in Ontario, Canada, and then went on to become a founding member of Spin Master with two of his friends, Anton Raby and Ronan Harari. We are so excited to have you here today, Ben. Thank you. I'm so nice happy. To be here. I know. It's nice and to be here and talk toys. We have two special guest interviewers today, my nice sons, Christian and Nikhil. And Christian and Nikhil are here because they love toys. And so they're going to be guest podcaster questioners today. Great. I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to some great questions. Um, but Ben, can you tell us a little bit about what Spin Master does? Well, so we're, uh, we've been around for close to 30 years. Of what, what you would call a full-line toy company, meaning we, we make toys in lots of different categories, games and uh, preschool and... You know, action. We do. We've done diecasts, dolls, just about everything you can think of. Novelty items, collectible items, just about everything you can think of. And uh, we sell our toys all over the world. And uh, we started in uh, Toronto, uh, close to 30 years ago, with a, a little novelty product, which was like a. It was. It was sort of like a head made out of sawdust, grass seed, and hosiery with a happy face on it, it was molded into the sawdust. And when you put it, when you dunked it in water and put it in your window, it would grow grass for hair. It was sort of like a novelty item. And uh, from that, one thing led to another, led to another, led to another, and then we found ourselves in the toy industry. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah I saw pictures of it, and it's um, and it's really cool because it's like a little pantyhose, yeah. like almost like a troll, a troll doll kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, almost like a troll doll, exactly. Like and um, and then from there, you guys were just in business. From there, we slowly worked our way into the toy industry. Because initially, we um, we were selling it to just, you know, when you start out, you, you don't totally know what you're doing. And you, we were just selling it to anybody that would take it. And we were selling it to sporting goods stores. We were selling it to even Roots bought it from us, you know, the clothing store Roots. And we were all selling it to, to uh, toy, toy stores. And as we came out with our next product, which was a juggling toy, called Devil Sticks, uh, that sort of seemed like the toy stores were the most active in, in asking us what was next. And at that time, we sort of discovered um, that there were these wonderful uh, people out there called toy inventors that came up with all these different ideas. And we started to meet with them and slowly started to choose different ideas from them that we would develop. And that sort of pushed us into the toy industry. It wasn't such a formal decision like, we're going to be a toy company. We were just trying to survive on some level. And so we ended up in toys. 
And so you you were you and your two college buddies mm-hmm. basically yeah. did this. Yeah. And well, I met I met Anton at college, um, and then Renan was his friend for many years prior. I met Renan through Anton. Okay. Yeah. And the three of you I was reading started with ten thousand dollars in capital, and yeah. in the first six months you guys hit a pretty impressive milestone with these Earth Buddies, and uh, you made one and a half million dollars in six months with the Earth Buddies. We, prob- we probably did. You know, I don't remember the numbers. <laughs> we sold, uh, so we started literally right after graduation. Okay. So by, I think we graduated at the end of April of 94, and by the end of May uh, into June, we were already making Earth Buddies. And um, the reason it sort of worked out, it wasn't a very capital intensive project because we didn't, um, there was no plastic, we didn't have to mold anything. There was no expensive machinery. And the, and this, uh, Renan's brother-in-law, a, a gentleman named Austin, was an, was an engineer and he came up with some basic machines that were able to sort of, we used as plungers to put the sawdust inside the hosiery, you know, and plunge it down and then we'd spin it, you know, and cut it and then, go to the next station it would get painted you know so it wasn't like we didn't need that much capital to start we needed you know his ingenuity to help build the machines and and uh and a lot of chutzpah that was sort of what we needed and we were so quick to start selling it that um we sort of were able to generate the capital needed the big the big when we really needed capital which was the tricky part was we got this order from kmart they initially bought some to test and when those sold well they turned around and gave us an order for half a million units. And we needed capital in order to hire to make the half a million units because we hadn't been paid yet. So we needed some some sort of bridge financing to help get through that. But we had the order in hand. We were able, uh, I believe we were able to show it to them, um, which which enabled us to secure the bridge financing. But we're go- it's going back a long time. I don't remember all the little details. But anyway, that was sort of how we... And it was over as quickly as it started because um, it sort of went up like a rocket ship and then the trend died. And I think by the end of it, we had sold two and a half million units. And literally, I think we were closed by June the following year. So it lasted about one year. I think, I think going on memory, it lasted about a year. It was very sad when it ended because it just happened so quickly. And we'd, we'd hired, like at, at one point, I think we had close to you know 150 or 200 people working in this little factory in downtown Toronto which would be unheard of today to run a factory out of like the downtown core like we were yeah that's cool yeah and did you know at what did you know that you wanted to become a toy entrepreneur or no, was this something no. that kind of organically developed no, just organically happened uh, I think uh, I would say of the three of us I was probably the most passionate about toys because I I really I thought it was so cool and I really believed in it. I really, I believed in it. Um, I guess the sort of, you know, artist side of me, whatever that, that is, sort of believed in the beauty of making toys. And so that really appealed to me. But we would have considered anything and we were considering anything. I mean, we made a tomato starter kit for Kmart when they said, well, we've appreciated working with you. And we had sold the Earth Buddy initially to the horticulture department, not the toy department. And so they said, well, maybe can you guys develop a tomato starter kit for us? And we did. It was a huge failure. Um, so we did try other things. But I think toys like, you know, the combination of the inventor uh, community embracing us and bringing ideas and sort of 
me bringing those ideas to the guys and we sort of just kept talking about it um, sort of pushed us into toys. I think, you know, that I was quite passionate about toys. I think that was maybe my conscience. You know, everybody brought something to the party that was very important to the journey. And I think maybe one of the things I really pushed for was just through the, just through the natural bringing of so many ideas was going into toys. Do you have some Over questions, to you. Christian? Christian? Christian, yeah. wow, you come prepared, man. Look at you. I have some questions. Okay. So, question number one. How do you stay ahead in the competitive toy industry? It's a great question. How do we stay ahead? Well, we, uh, we I mean, there's lots of different ways. We talk to buyers. We look at the internet. We look at what's on the shelf. So we're constantly going to the stores and seeing what other people are doing. Um, but the other thing we're trying to do, which I think defines Spin Master and has from the very beginning, is we, we try to be very innovative with what we're doing and what we're creating. And so we've sort of never been that type of company that looks at what people are doing and then sort of tries to do a sort of a version of what they're doing that might be cheaper or slightly better. We typically want to try to do something that's very unique and different. And I guess we've developed a sense on how to do that over, over all the years. So that's that's kind of what we try and do and and our source for that comes from lots of different places the people that work at the company you know are a great source because they're constantly following things that are going on out there and we also have an internal R&D department which brings ideas so these are sort of all the different inputs that we go to and look and and sort of consider when we're choosing what to put our time and effort into Okay. Well, I hope they get easier than that. <laughs> okay, okay, go ahead. Um, my next question is, can you describe your creative process for developing new toys and games? So the, so the, the process, that's a, also an excellent question. And, uh, you know, it's, it changes slightly every time. But one of the things that, that is fairly familiar is we're, we're typically following a timeline. So we're working already on toys for 25 and 26. So 2025, 26. We've already approved, I believe, all the toys that we're making for fall 25. I would call that 85% approval. So we might find something amazing in the next six months that we might try to say, wow, this is too important to let go. We might want to try to launch it early. But typically, as we've gotten bigger, I find we've you know become a little more rigid with that type of stuff. So. Um, as a general rule, we're, we're, we, we're pretty signed off on what we're doing for 25 fall. And so what we would do is, um, as we get ready, so let's say talking about 26 fall, we start to, at a certain point in time, we start to consider ideas. And we'll, for and there's two ways, there's two types of ideas. We might have something that's completely brand new right? There's no brand that exists. There's not a line extension. It's like, here's this completely new cool game. So that's one type of product that we would launch. Another type, those are the hardest types because we have no past reference. But let's say we're developing a, a toy for Paw Patrol. There we have a past reference because we know what we've done up until now and we can, um, We'll sort of look at where the line has been. We have a theme that the animation show is driving towards, so we'll develop toys that work with that theme. Um, if it's a line extension, then we already kind of understand the brand and what the brand stands for, and we'll come up with ideas that might work with the brand. So those are sort of the different 
places where we um, where we'll so then then from that we'll have lots of meetings and we'll sit down with the designers and the marketing folks and we'll we'll talk about it usually they'll start and then they'll bring it to the executive team and then we'll we'll talk about it from there come up with ideas and how to improve it how to change it um, how to, what's that feature that's going to be the the thing that's going to make you say wow right what's that one thing that one moment right like so for example you said you're a big rubik's rubik's cube fan let me ask you a question what excites you about the rubik's cube what's the thing about it that really got you excited about it there are like a bunch of different ways that you can do it and it's always going to end up being in a different position and you're always going to have to do it a different way not just one certain way. Right. So, so it's the challenge, all the different different ways of solving it. So it's a challenge of solving. And what else? Mm, like, you're, it's not always going to be one thing that you're always going to do when you're playing with the Rubik's cube. Well, do you? What about the speed? You try yeah. to do it at yeah. a certain. So you try to. You can try to get better at it, unlike other toys, where you can't really compete with yourself right so you can compete with yourself you can compete with others like you and your brother can see yeah. who does it fastest mm -hmm. it challenges you because there's a different way to solve it every time um, and then the other thing that's very important about Rubik's Cube is the way it looks right mm -hmm. those colors those iconic colors right the yellow side the blue side the orange side right it's almost transcends being a puzzle and it's become sort of a cultural icon and what does it stand for right when you solve the Rubik's cube for the first time what's that kind of thing that you what did you think to yourself oh i thought that well i felt proud of myself because i knew it's like not a lot of people know how to solve the Rubik's cube and i felt like it was sort of an accomplishment. Right. A little bit. Right. So it made you feel smart. Yeah. Right? Like, we can use that simple word. And the other thing that I think Rubik's Cube really stands for is problem solving, creative problem solving. So those are all the different things that go into making the Rubik's Cube special. So if we were going to do another toy or a game under the Rubik's Cube brand, we would look for all of these things we just talked about. Can you compete with yourself? Can you compete with others? The colors, the shape, the way it moves, the sound it makes when you change it, right? Like, you don't even need to be in the room. You know your son is playing with the Rubik's Cube because you hear that sound, right? That it's clicking. Like that you clicking. You don't even really happening. think about it, but you just know, right? So I bet if you, if you um, heard this from another room, you would need to know, you wouldn't need to see it, you would just know this is what my son is what my sons well, are doing I right I think that's why spin master and you and you guys are so iconic because toys are not just things that you play with they're part of our zeitgeist this Absolutely. is like the fabric of it's not just the fabric of growing up but this is the fabric of who you are. It, right, it's, there's there's a nostalgia wrapped up in it. When you're a kid, it's like that's your your work. Playing yeah. is your job when you're a kid. Yeah. But when you're a parent, you go through this whole nostalgia process to see your kids' eyes open, and it's the learning and the playing and the working and that feeling of 
their first Rubik's Cube solve and that feeling of discovery and the cooperation and the fighting yeah, and then course. the learning through the of fighting course. and cooperation. Totally. And yeah. that it's so cool to not only make a business out of playing, but to also enable the joy and the competition and the ups and downs and the personal growth in doing that. So that's absolutely like I think that whole story is why not only was I excited to have you here, but as you can see, our guest podcasters were excited to have you here. Yeah, no, listen, I had that same, I mean, I I didn't articulate it necessarily in my mind at 25 years old, but I I really deeply bought into the idea that, firstly, I I had great memories of playing with toys. And and as well, I believe that like, it's sort of your first point of contact as a toy. Like we remember the the first, um, we remember movies that we, things, you know, that we saw as kids or TV shows we watched as kids, but we remember the first thing, what does your, you know, mom or dad do? They give you a teddy bear, or you get a teddy bear as a gift, you get a plush toy, and then you play with sort of sorting toys, right? Little cubes that you fit into things, and, and uh, now they make all these different, uh, pad play pads that play mats that you can sit on and do things like toys are such an important part of development um, but even more importantly and I think sometimes we lose sight of this is um, imagination imagination play and I think um, a lot of people are obsessed with learning and I, I'm actually not that upset I think there's there's so many important ways to learn and I think in many ways the most important type of learning is is imagination play right and I, I feel like you know a lot of people a lot of parents they want to teach their kids their colors they want to teach their kids their numbers they want to get them into math really early they want but but in a way the most beautiful and especially the kind of play that your your mind is so open to at the earliest stage is imagination play action figures and die cast cars and dolls and all that stuff is so important you know and um I'm quite passionate about that, you know, to me. Um, And and I think like when a kid is sitting there and they've got their action figures out and they're creating a scene, a scenario, that is so powerful. And it's storytelling and and you're, you're exchanging dialogue and the characters of personalities. And I think there's so much going on in a, in a kid's mind that adults have either forgotten or don't totally realize. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, Playing alone is so critical. And um, some of the toys that I think people um, don't necessarily um, pay attention to, like um, die-cast cars and even things that have sort of been shunned, you know, like playing with a Nerf gun or, or pushing a tank around or any of those things, like they're ve- it's very important parts of play because kids don't think about the negative part of that, right? What they're, what it's about, it's about being a hero. It's about action. It's about saving the day, right? It's about friendship. It's about, you know, it's it's about um, nurturing. It's about, it's all of that, that thing, all of that stuff, right? And so I'm, I'm a very... It's the adults who ruined it. We yeah. moved into like weaponizing everything. Yes, and exactly. It yeah, and, and I'm quite passionate about it. Yeah. And I think Interesting. parents are so in... Like, I almost feel like they're too involved in their kids' life. It's like, 
it's like if a kid is playing, never talk to them. <laughs> Give them that, like, it's like stealing from them. You know what I mean? Give them that moment mm -hmm. and don't say anything. And when that kid is in the zone, you just have to tiptoe and step away because that is, that is like, you know, God's work. Do you know what I mean? That is your child, like, just creating a world, a story, and it's, it's so beautiful, you know? And I think sometimes we, we don't realize that, and, and so that's why I'm so, so such a passionate um, developer of toys, and I feel like, you know, um, learning toys aren't, you know, that's a part of it, but I think the imagination play is equally important, and I know I shouldn't be saying this, because we make lots of toys with batteries, but toys without batteries also serve a very important role. Let's I'm not even referring to the environmental part, but, but the play part, the imagination part, right? Because if a, if a doll talks to you, in a way, you're not imagining what that doll is saying. That doll is saying something to you and you're responding to the doll. But when you don't, when the doll's not talking to you, well then you're making up what the doll is saying, right? Because the doll is always talking, even if the doll is not physically talking because the child's pushed a button. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway. Sorry, I'm rambling. Christian, next question. Please. Yeah, sorry, that was an awfully long answer. I'll keep the this one shorter. The next question is, what has been the most challenging aspect so far in your job? That's a, wow, that is a really great, the hardest thing, picking a toy that sells, <laughs> that's the hardest thing. It's very, you have to be very comfortable with failure because a lot of toys that, um, that are launched into the marketplace are not successful, especially the ones where they're not attached to an existing brand. Um, and I'll give you an example, the Rubik's Cube, right? Like, um, you're very comfortable buying it because you know it, right? And you played with it as a kid. It's been around since 1973. I think that's, Erno Rubik, I think, developed it in 1973, and I think it was shipped into the West, uh, into North, North America. I think the first time we saw it was around 1980, I believe. Um, maybe a little sooner. But anyway, so you already buy into what the Rubik's Cube is all about. But if I showed you this for the first time, what would go through your head? I don't know what that is, right? So launching toys from scratch is the hardest thing to do and the most challenging thing to do. But also the most fun for real, for a real toy maker. I mean, I think... You know, that, that's always, for me, the most exciting thing, is developing a toy that doesn't have a preconceived history. Is there a toy that you've launched that you really thought was a great toy that just did not hit its oh mark? Oh, my God, so many. What's the toy so that you many. just think should have been a <laughs> hit and it just did not sell? So many. I So many. I mean, Paint Sensation was a, I, I, was a wonderful toy that... that um, gave this great effect. It was an activity toy that we did years ago, and I was so excited about it. It was a total failure. I, you know, I, I'd have to think about it. We've had so, so, so just so you know. Now's your chance to pitch yeah, your no, toy. Yeah, no, no. Let me tell you, our success rate on brand new toys, meaning not like a line yeah. extension for Rubik's Cube, is probably 15%. Really? So it's very, very low. Now, it might not be a complete toll and other flop, we might um, sell something, we might do well enough to just make, you know, our initial investment back, but not do well enough to ship it for a second year. So um, there's all those types of considerations as well. But oh, you have to be very comfortable with failure to, to play in the toy industry. It's my impression that a lot of toys that hit the market these days are 
kind of made to pack and play along with media like TV and YouTube and it's sort of an all-in-one, all-encompassing thing. Is that are accurate? You referring, are you referring like from a marketing like, standpoint? Yeah, like a mar- like like Paw Patrol. Like I don't even know. It's a chicken egg thing. I don't yeah. know what came first, the toys or the show. Yeah. And it, the show it, came first the show in that came case. First. Yeah, but yeah. not always. Bakugan, the toys came first. Um, a lot of uh, girls' properties, the toys came uh, came first. For example, Barbie. Care Bears or Barbie. Pound Puppy, Barbie. Uh, now they did Barbie much later. They did entertainment for Barbie, but a lot of, um, a lot of, particularly in the girls segment, a lot of um, shows were, the show came after the toy. Yeah. Um, I find less in classic action like boys action like um, Star Wars. You know where the sh- obviously the movie comes or Transformers. Right, the show comes and then I believe Transformers. Transformers. I think there was a show before there was a toy, but I don't remember. That one is, I'm a little bit spotty on, but I believe um, I believe the show came first. Um, anyway, but that's been going on for years, so that's not new. Uh, toy, TV toy commercials started in, I believe, the 1960s. Uh, I think Barbie was like one of the first to, to do television advertising in the very early 60s. So that's been around for a long, long time. And licensing toys has been around for a long, long time. Betty Boop, um, the Beatles toys. I mean, this has been going on for ever since the toy industry sort of was created. And uh, if anything, it's much harder now because in the old days, Saturday morning, you knew what every kid was doing. They were in front of the TV watching cartoons. So if you put a television commercial on the air in 1990, you knew that almost 100% of kids were in front of the TV on Saturday morning. It's completely not like that anymore, right? Because most people don't even have cable anymore. So the only way to reach them is sort of um, through YouTube, and there's all these rules, so a lot of it is done even now. It's more important to market through parents, which never used to be the case. So there's there's... It's more um, fragmented now in terms mm-hmm. of how you how you reach kids. Yeah. Um, so that that to, part has changed. Now you have to market it's a lot harder through, now. Uh, kids who unbox toys on YouTube. Influencers <laughs> for sure is uh, is something that didn't exist. That's a brand new way of doing it. Yeah. Fascinating. Totally. Yeah, hundred percent. So um, yeah, that's a, that's a huge that is a huge change for sure. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, Christian, next question. Next, next question. Okay. So, have children's play preferences changed over the years? That is a fantastic question. I think it's a question of degree. I think. I think for the most part. Let me put it to you this way. I think not nearly as much as people would think. I think. Um, parents have definitely changed and parents are potentially a little more involved in what their kids play with to some degree not as much again as people think Um, and I think I think if you ask a lot of parents they'd say I'm very involved but what but I I I personally believe kids get what they want right at the end of the day Um, so I think I think the answer is there there have been some shifts societal shifts and what um, people look for in toys, but I think 
for the most part, a great toy in 1960 is not that different than a great toy today. Technology changes, um, but I mean, they've been putting, dolls have been talking for, you know, since uh, Chatty Cathy or whatever the first talking doll was and talking bears where you pull the string on the back. So, I mean, that, that's also been around for a really, really long time. And what's amazing is you pick up something like this. No batteries, no lights, no talking, no sound, you know, no speaker, no battery. So there's still a ton of toys that people, the kids play with that don't have any of that stuff in it. So I think it's like anything else. I think there's been, you know, action figures still sell really well and, um, and, uh, and kids play with them um, still to this day, right? No, not necessarily any sound lights or any of those things. So there have been some changes. I won't go too deep. There, there have been some changes in what categories were bigger in the past and what's not as big as it used to be. But I'm going to end the question by saying I think there have been changes, but probably not as many as people might think. So I think there's a lot of chatter out there in society about what people sort of feel their kids should be playing with. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure the toys themselves have necessarily changed that much. Is it, is, is kind of the existential question about technology killing play, is that, is that coming true or not really? Um, Are kids I getting glued to devices? I think, you know, yes, that, yes, yes they are for yeah. sure. Um, you know, the toy industry, it grows, the toy industry has been fairly consistent. It hasn't shrunk. It just grows, I would say it probably grows less slowly than sort of the video game market, but it's it's just been consistent for many, many years with sort of like a like a slower type of growth curve. Um, but I, I, I don't know, you know, what the size of the toy industry, but it doesn't, it's sort of stable and has been stable for just many years because kids still play with toys. They just still play with toys. And what we find is video games supplement toy buying, but they don't replace toy buying. And um, so, yeah. And by the way, there, again, there have been video games since we played with Atari and in television in 1980 and, and Pong. So, I mean, again, there have been video games for a really long time. Um, but there's no doubt um, kids' time is way more split. It's also more split because kids have way more scheduled time. Like when we were kids, we came home, we ran out and started playing on the street and that was what we did. And now it's like, find a kid who has even a couple days during the week or even on the weekend to themselves, right? So I think that also affects toy buying because there's just less time for everything now. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's been fairly consistent and fairly stable. And toys can be huge successes when kids get excited about toys, still, still to this day. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm in the toy industry. I'm a big fan. Um, so obviously, I'm, I'm a little biased. But, um, and we do, we make, um, you know, games for iPads as well. You know, Tokoboka is... Um, I'm very proud of the work that we do in Tokoboka, and I think it's it's wonderful. Um, we're working on an amazing uh, app for Rubik's Cube, so we sort of do it all. Um, and uh, listen, I think my heart, you know, we've been in toys longer, so 
I'm na- I'm probably a little naturally more naturally lean towards I'm a toy person, you yeah. know. But um, and I'm not against app playing. I think it's like everything. I think no one thing should should, should rule the day. Yeah. Should dominate. Yeah. Right. I think I think app, I think iPad time should be limited, um, just because I and video game time should be limited and. Just like you wouldn't hand your kid a box of sugar and say, eat it all day. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a piece of chocolate. It doesn't mean you shouldn't play an amazing app. And it doesn't mean that you that you shouldn't play with toys. Although I do feel toys are like vegetables. You know, you can <laughs> you can there you cannot have too much toy play. Exactly. Because it's 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 a different type of play, right? Yeah. yeah. All right, um, you're up. Christian. This is the last question. What advice would you give to someone looking to start their own business in the toy or entertainment sector? Don't. <laughs> what would my advice be? Well, that's a, wow. Well, it was really hard. I mean, we did it the, the old-fashioned way, which was um, starting from scratch, which was, uh, that's a whole other podcast. Um, and I would say it was really, really, really hard. Really hard. So hard, I don't think we've recovered to this day. It's been 30 years. Um, I think one great way is to, is to get a job at a toy company and learn that way. Uh, get a job at a toy store is a great way to learn. Um, and, or get a job at an entertainment company and is another great way to learn. Um, so I think those are, those are great ways, ways to learn. And then the, the other way is like come up with a toy idea and sell it to a toy company is another thing that you can do. There was a, a 10 year old boy that we just optioned a product from about four or five months ago. So um, so what get was, started. What was the uh, product? I'm not allowed to say because oh. it's under confidentiality still, but he was given an option. Um, and uh, I actually think it's great. I think, it's, I think it was a great idea. And so we'll see what happens. We'll see if it launches. But you, anyone can, can at any age develop a toy idea and bring it into us. Um, oh my God! Is this a third twin? So nice to meet you, Ben. What's your name? Vivek. Vivek, pleasure. Do you have any questions? Over here. Very <laughs> good. Well, you're come join the party. You're meeting the whole family. Yeah. Anyway. What are your kids' favorite toys to play with? You know, it's very sad for me. They're just getting out of toys, and they were huge toy kids. And and I was a very um, hands-off dad, so I didn't actually, I don't, I didn't push anything. So I never, I, I wasn't a guy that pushed toys on them. I was far more interested in seeing what they gravitated towards on their own. So the funniest thing is Kid One was all about Lego and Pokemon, uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! I would say 90%, and when he was really young, he was a big car guy. The other kid, all about military. And it's funny, because I'm not a military guy. But he loved tanks and army men, and he would watch documentaries on submarines and World War II, and we'd have to somehow find him books on World War II for kids. So he was like a big army guy, and he loved create for his grade eight school project, or I think he was younger, six, he was like six or seven, he created D-Day out of cardboard. So he was somehow a really big, that's why sort of I, I sort of say to parents like, don't, you know, like, just because your kid buys an Nerf gun doesn't mean they're going to the top of a clock tower, you know? Like, when a kid plays this way, it's very different. It's not, 
you know, it's not about violence for them. It's about being a hero. It's about saving the day. It's about action. It's about being a spy. It's about, it's all about creating a story in their mind, you know? So, um, I mean, my kid was, uh, anyway, so he was a huge military kid and, and, uh, but he was never violent. (laughs) And now it's very sad because, you know, uh, now they're sl- slowly moving out of toys. It's very sad for me because they hit the age of 10, which even in the 70s, sort of the peak age for toys was sort of about 10. And, and I'm seeing them slowly fade out. They play a little bit, but not much anymore. Yeah, my eldest son is 11. He's not here right now. Is he, is he, but, is uh, he, he's, is he aged out? You know, I'm seeing him more interested in books and yeah. friends and yeah, sports sure. and it's other normal. stuff it's normal it's and, totally uh, normal i think that's part of the nostalgia around toys and 100%. i think that's why what you do is so wonderful because yeah. there's this really magic slice of moment. childhood it's yes, that it's moment. moment yeah and um i that's you know i've had um more than a hundred guests on this podcast and this is the only one where five of my six children wow. have showed up here well, and I'm so interrupted glad you guys the came podcast. In. What was your favorite toy guys growing up? Legos. Yeah, probably well, Legos. Probably Lego. Okay, well and Lego's a wonderful toy. You know, building and creating and then playing with it afterwards is amazing. Um, well, last night we were talking about this and um, you know we were writing these questions. Christian got his legal pad out, wrote all these questions for you. And um, we were going around and um, in our house, we have so many of your toys in our home. We have Bakugans, we have basically every single Bakugan is a very magical toy. Every Paw Patrol, every Paw Patrol toy that you could imagine. Yeah. All of the, I mean, so many Rubik's Cubes. Yeah, do you know what Bakugan, here's a one, Every one of these could be its own hour-long discussion, but I'll tell you one interesting thing about Bakugan. So Bakugan in Japanese means exploding sphere. And the we put out a call to the inventors um, to come up with what would become Bakugan. And the line that we used was the marble of the 21st century. So that's what led to the creation of Bakugan, right? Um, there was a lot of people that helped along the way, including Sega. Um, in Japan, we partnered with them. They did an amazing job. But the thing that led to the initial idea was the marble. The marble, the most simple, old school, been around forever thing around was what led to the creation of Bakugan. Which amazing. one year, which one year was bigger than Star Wars. In 2009, Bakugan was the biggest toy of, of, of the year that year in the action figure aisle. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so oh, much so for welcome. being thank here. You for having me. This has been my favorite episode that we have ever had. Because uh, you had your family with kids, you. Kids, could you please say thank you? Thank, thank you. Oh, you're so welcome, Yay. guys. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you.